Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. And good evening, listeners from all over the world to another episode of The Hipstorians. Joining us from Japan, from uh, the West Coast of the United States, and even a few fans in Vietnam. Derek, what's going on? Great, great to see. So hopefully we'll uh, expand and conquer the world. So going to help us along with that this evening is one Mr. Paul Craddock. He's there in the waiting room. We're just about to let him in. Now, this we are like all things history here on the Hip Historians, but this is a little bit different, Derek. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like this. You see, we're just kind of we're, we're, we're stepping off piece a little bit. Uh, it's very yeah. much history, mind you. A history of body parts. Um, that's really it. And how to uh, fuse them. Lovely. Looking forward to there, this one. There's a, there's a touch of bestiality in here as well, I think. What? Yeah. I don't no, know. No, we, we don't need fewer discretion, though. We don't need... Are you sure about that? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. We're okay with that. Okay. The book is called uh, Spare Parts. And joining us right now is the author of said book, Mr. Paul Craddock. Welcome to the Historians. Thank you so much. Hello. I am in hip company, I see. You. Definitely well, well, you don't know about that. We're too old to be hipsters, Paul, as we keep saying. <laughs> Welcome on board. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's really Where, nice to, to be here. Well, I'm, I've, I've not moved anywhere. I'm still at home. But, you know. Where are you joining us? Where is home? <laughs> London. Or the outskirts of London. Very nice. We're on the outskirts of Dublin. So we're just... Ooh, a well, I am. Nice, Derek's out. Where are you, Derek? Now you're at... We're in right. Lovely Leitrim. It's uh, Ireland's best kept secrets. A beautiful, beautiful place. Not now you spill the beans. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so yeah, you're going to have to tell us like, okay, obviously you have some bit of a medical association. Um, so that was probably the prompt for writing this book. But uh, like, tell us really, what was the motivation for it? Well, I, I don't know if you could say I have a medical association. Re I'm a bit of an imposter of a medical world. Okay. Um, I am a historian. Uh, my PhD is in the history of 18th century transplants. And what really started me off on the journey towards um, finding out more about transplants is a picture of a woman called Jennifer Sutton. Uh, and this is a very interesting picture. She is staring at her own dead heart. What? Oh. She's staring at her own dead heart in a museum case. So this was, let me just say, it was 2008, I believe. I think I came across this image in 2009, and it captivated me. It's 2008. Uh, she had, Jennifer Sutton had cardiomyopathy, which is a condition that causes the walls of the heart to be thicker than they're supposed to be. It makes it difficult to pump the blood around the body. The only cure for that is a transplant. So she had that. And then a museum in London called the Welcome Collection, which if you haven't been, you should. It's an amazing place. Um, they asked if they could use her heart as a display, as an exhibit in their first exhibition. And 
yeah, there was a photographer there to, to take a picture of, of her looking at her own heart. If you search on just anybody listening to this now, search on Google, search Jennifer Sutton heart, and you'll see, well, you'll see a selection of images. Um, and it's those images that I came across and well, you'll see why it captivated me, but basically it invited me <laughs> to do three things. One of them was to sort of, it was a kind of an appreciation for the health service on one level. So without, without the health service, of course, Jennifer wouldn't be alive. And there was that kind of appreciation inherent in this, uh, this image. Um, more importantly, for, from my perspective as a, as a historian, um, it had an intimacy. It's a woman looking at her own heart, you can't get much more intimate. Then you've got to think inside of her is another person's heart. So there's a it's sort of spine chilling intimacy kind of um, reflection. But that leads you to even deeper thoughts that everybody has at some point or another. What does it mean to have a body if part of my body, a vital part of my body, my heart, no less, uh, can be right in front of me? Uh, what does it mean to be a human um, by extension if part of my body can be replaced by a part of an animal body? What does it mean to have an identity? So all these questions that are central to what it means to be a human and alive that everybody asks it struck me that transplant surgery was um a, a place or a kind of procedure that prompts you into making those very primal reflections and as soon as i started to look into it um well a few months after i started to look into it i discovered that it's actually one of the oldest procedures oldest surgical procedures that humanity has ever performed which surprised me but it also made me wonder you know what history is there beyond the 20th century which is what we can easily read about i'm so oh, huge, huge yeah yeah so i was just going to say i'm so tempted to google that image as we were speaking but about to have, i'm going to have my dinner just after this one so it's I'm not gonna... it's not it's not um actually saying that i've lost all idea of what it means to be squeamish <laughs> yeah i'd say so <laughs> that's that's an interesting point because i am the most squeamish person so you know just reading you know some of the footnotes in this book almost through squinted eyes but like as you as you hinted there you know you you i wouldn't say you stumbled on a great story because it was there the whole time but not many people I certainly wasn't. Were you, Derek, aware that, you know, transplants you think of as a more modern day development in science mm. and, and, and medicine. But like this is going back how long? Like how long are the first transplants recorded? How first long? transplants, skin grafts. So that's grafting skin from the forehead, typically to the nose or maybe to an ear if in, you know, in um, in the extreme. Um, that goes back to well the first mention is the sushruta samhita which is an ancient indian ayurvedic surgical text written somewhere between the second and the sixth century bc and they were considered traditional operations even then cataracts are in there uh or what would become called a cesarean section that's in there as well all really very old primal procedures that humanity has has, has carried out for as long as we have history and beyond 
Well, you get us really into, into the medieval age is when you, you start to see from syphilis, actually. <laughs> so, so the need to place noses, rhinoplasty, mm. right? And it wasn't only the wealthy. This was actually people from, you know, ordinary Joes on the street who obviously were uh, mixing it up a little bit outside of the, the marital home. And um, yeah. <laughs> Nicely put. I yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Very diplomatic, Derek. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, this is, uh, so you're referring to a bit, well, quite a bit later in history, later, in, the, yeah. in the Renaissance, really, in the, in the 1550s. Is, that's when we really start to get um, reliable records for transplant surgery. It's it's probably happened quite extensively, extensively before then. Um, but once we get to that era, so we're, we're now not in India anymore, we're in Italy, and we're not at, we're nothing it's nothing to do with the scientific revolution going on at that time um you know the, the word exploration the word discovery they are words that came into the english language you know early in that century so it's a century of of of, of those things of discovery of exploration of of advance but transplant surgery in the form of skin grafts are ultra traditional they were performed not by any legitimate surgical authority. No one trained in a university would have even considered uh, it a possibility or, or even desirable. I mean, some of the famous surgeons of the time, some of the famous anatomists of the time, uh, they thought it was a transplantation of muscle, which it obviously wasn't. So it was, it was a procedure that was practiced solely by Italian peasants and Italian peasant families in secret. So they'd have their own special sort of secretive skin graft, taking skin from the forehead or the forearm in this period as well. And so they'd end up looking like Bruce Forsyth, if anybody remembers him. <laughs> Doing that. Um, is, this an, is this an audio or a video? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, unfortunately, our listeners are going to miss out on, on some of the dates you're pulling there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's let's say that it looked like it looks like a person doing a, a, an elephant trunk impression. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so basically, you have that situation where this operation has become traditional. And that's where the story of spare parts starts. And by the end of that century, it's become something that's studied and it's it's a legitimate part of, of, of surgical practice. Mm. Uh, but it's interesting how it gets there. Yeah, you see, now I remember visiting um, the Valley of the Tombs in Egypt like many years ago and oh. learned, yeah, learned about the mummies and, you know, yeah. obviously... They were fascinating while you're in school, right? Like, oh, I used to love. I used to love that when I was. Who didn't school, love yeah. mummies? But you know, there's the, the there's the, the gory aspect that that really grabs people's attention. Where you know how they embalmed them, right? So they're like sucking their brains out through their nose, you know, taking out all their entrails and their heart and putting them in different jars, uh, you know. So that's all that gory stuff that people people love when they're kids. So to be honest, that's all I really know about. And I'm using the quote unquote fingers here uh, of, of ancient medical science. Obviously, it goes a lot back before that. But where, where does the whole mummies in ancient Egypt fit into this story? Were they ahead of their times or were they just copying other people? Mummies in ancient. Well, it has a in, the, in this story, in the story of transplant surgery, it has a very small part, I suppose, a century or so later. 
um, when one of the one of the French physicians who don't want blood transfusion to exist because it's alchemy with the soul and that kind of thing, he wow. sees um, he sees a he sees a treatment being prepared um in i can't remember where it was now but it's in it's in the book but i've not i've not spoken about this story before <laughs> so i'm just remembering Wait, now that's good but it's uh <laughs> he sees um so he's a pirate uh, and he becomes a physician later um but he while he's pirating he sees in an apothecary um someone preparing mummies because one of the traditional treatments for most things <laughs> uh, was to was to eat mummy was to eat ground up mummy wow. or to just chew on a toe or something i don't know but to, you know to, 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 to sort of be grounded up as dust and they made uh, infusions with mummies but they were running low on mummies so what he saw was someone taking plague victims and yes. mummifying them but it doesn't, it doesn't have much a, mummies don't have much of a, a part in in the story of transplant surgery other than mm. that moment which makes this particular physician um whose name i i would but i will butcher because i'm going to try it it's martinier or something like that you're right you're right you're right am martinier. i right I, yes yeah <laughs> see i my french is is horrendous <laughs> um yeah but he uh he 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 sort of sees in that of a capacity of humans to just be greedy little buggers mm. and nasty um to, to, to use some pretty simple terms. <laughs> <laughs> but that's skipping ahead quite a lot in yeah, the story. Really. I mean, we just, I was just reading some of the footnotes. It's going to grab anybody's attention, really. If you're into history or into medical science, you're just, it strikes me as a book that just kind of has that appeal because it's what we are, right? It's really, any of us uh, could face transplant in, in future years or perhaps some of our listeners already have. Like it's, it's with us. It's, it's a real it lives with us almost for one. Mm, and it's who we are as well, isn't it? It's not just what we are. That's it's how you start this are. conversation off, which I hadn't really even considered. <clears throat> you know, now you're, you know, you're really delving into other areas. I hadn't even considered the whole spiritual realm, you know, who or what are we if, if, you know, we can live with somebody else's heart inside. Well, us. I, I've actually, what, what actually got my interest in, in the book, well, I actually know a man uh, who did have a heart transplant. Mm, um, he's, okay. he's, yeah. he's still alive today. 15 years uh, later um, and was very much touched by the spiritual aspect of it and it, oh, was a young, yeah. it, it was a young man's heart part of his journey with it was he got in contact with uh, the the man's family and um, went to met them you know uh, and trying and tried to find out more about whose heart he had inside his body mm. because he was left with those questions you know like you know that feeling of god is it me you know is it really really me but um yeah an interesting story yeah, it's a, no, that's that's kind of... yeah no that's really that's really interesting I, I didn't think you could do well maybe maybe it's a british thing or maybe it's a london i don't know um but i i speaking to transplant coordinators um working now working in london i know they try to discourage making connections between um patients and that's recipients and the family of the donor because there's been a few situations where, for instance, um, I know of one story where a, um, a, a patient had received a kidney from this man's daughter, the, the man, the father of the donor, um, when he found out 
the address. He wrote Christmas cards and letters and gave sent presents to the to the, to to his daughter, who he felt was still alive inside of this um, this poor recipient. So, Bruce, but it, it it does go to show how how closely we identify with our bodies and with our organs. Yeah. And um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's almost too much to well, too much to comprehend. I was going to say too much to bear that kind of um, situation where you're living with someone else's, you know, where you're where a person is dislocated, so to speak. But it's it's too it's you one can't comprehend it. I don't think. Yeah, and when you start writing this book, did that come new to you? Or were you expecting to? sort of discover this part of the story did it come as a surprise then it came as a surprise that well it that it was that realization that made me want to write it so in that sense it didn't come as part of as, as a surprise but what did surprise me is that um when you look further back um any kind of transplant has this kind of reflection so even with skin grafting you know the first Med, proper medical book to put this to put the skin grafting technique down so to take it from the peasants and to put it into medical um the medical world that was a chap called gaspar italia cozzi and he um this was 1597 and his book was massive yeah i think it was a couple of volumes actually uh, but only the very last bit is anything to do with the technique because at the start you, you had to argue using all the ancient authorities, using all the church fathers, he had to argue that um, the face is sacred. It's, uh, it's something that was uh, divinely ordered. And it's his job as a surgeon to, to, to restore that order. In other words, he's not, he's not destroying God's creation. He's restoring it or he's helping to restore it. So that's an argument he makes. Um, but, the sort of counter arguments were all about well if you if you cut into the person's face do any kinds of plastic kind of plastic surgery you're inviting chaos because you are you're creating a monster and we have so many myths and legends from ancient greece from rome and also more locally about what happens when you disturb what shouldn't be disturbed so that very you know very primal association between your body and your self um self personhood i suppose uh, self is a bit of a and it's a bit of a modern term but you know what i mean that sort of mm. your you-ness yeah yeah with you you were like there was not i mean like with that philosophers had a huge role to play in in the early you know, guises of, of uh, medicine, the medical world mm. and, and surgery. So I suppose they were always, you know, thinking and wondering, you know, about the essence <clears throat> of life or what was it that flowed through our veins. And I know this was very, very important in ancient times as well as to what, what actually blood, blood was. Descartes had quite a, a bit, he was quite involved, wasn't he? Not right. Uh, I know you write about him in the book. This is, I suppose, large what got to the question of blood transfusions. Mm. You know, that, that was all um, quite philosophically related. People didn't want to, you know, 
touch too much of it. And then eventually they went all out and they went, sure, you know, you might you might as well have the blood of a sheep because uh, sure isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't it's, it, it's the holy lamb of God, sure. <laughs> Don't you know? <laughs> there's, a, there's a few stories there. I'm sure it's exactly like that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. you're right. I mean, philosophy is it's it's throughout this, but not sort of not ivory tower kind of philosophy and in, in, in fact a lot of it is quite intuitive um so to go on to blood transfusion uh, you had it's basically blood transfusion arrives when you have two systems of belief not clashing as you would expect them to so you have all of this half-formed theory legitimate medicine from galen from you know the four humors that kind of thing you had all kinds of teachings of the church sort of thrown in there as well plus the teachings of of ovid you know poets from from rome and ancient greece who 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 showed in their poetry or or not showed but they suggested in their poetry that maybe um inside of the blood or inside of the body there might be something like your youth uh, there might be something that could cause you to transform into something else if you would, if you could take that in. So all of this sort of half-formed theory is just sitting there at that in that period. What you get new, though, is in the beginning of the 17th century, you get um, William Harvey. So William Harvey, as every school child knows, <laughs> um, discovered the circulation of the blood. So he, he was... He was absolutely into the old school medicine at first and he taught old school medicine but in his private experiments he came to sort of realize actually this is all wrong blood isn't created in the liver when you eat something and then the body parts sort of grab it and i mean grab it i mean literally the expression that uh, i think it was Arist aristotle and galen used was a hand so a hand <laughs> your stomach would form a hand and it would go up your throat and grab the food. Uh, and that would sort of extend throughout your body. So your if your heart needed blood, it would grab some blood. If your spleen needed blood, it would grab some blood. So there wasn't this sense of it circulating. But by making observations on fish and on animals, um, I'm not going to describe those because it, it's quite dark and gory. But by making those observations, he came to the conclusion that the heart is a muscle and it pumps blood around in a circuit. In other words, part of your body can be understood as a machine. Now, when you put those two systems together, you have all these things like youth, your bits of personality, your soul, your temperament, your humours, all of these sitting inside of a blood potentially but now you've got a system that you can connect to another system which becomes transfusion and so transfusion is just the connection of two blood circulatory systems and the importance of transfusion of the 17th century is that it could be whatever the hell you wanted it to be it wasn't a transfusion of blood to replace lost blood it was a transplantation of whatever the hell you thought was inside of a blood incredible yeah and that's lead us where we are where today effectively you know starting off with some basic concepts like that with hands grabbing blood and moving us on forward into, into the systems that we know thank god you know that brought to express, expression we've all moved on because you know it would be tricky in the theatre now. 
there's, well, there's, it's, there's, it's the first kind of blood types, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, sheep, dogs, <laughs> cats. Yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a great story, wasn't there? Some guy, they went, they went and pulled some guy out of church who was Arthur Koga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's Arthur it. Koga. Yeah, yeah. Just um, uh, that's that's worth telling the, the listeners about. That was a good story. Do you want to do you want to go ahead? Um, Arthur Koga, um, remember, let's see, if I don't remember, you can cut it out, can't you? I thought, I thought yeah, for a moment yeah. you were live. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were live. For, I thought you were greeting people coming into the chat room. Uh, the oh, yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not a bad idea. Um, yeah. Okay, Arthur Koga, well, he was one of the first recipients of animal blood, one of the first blood transfusion recipients at all. The first transfusions were between animals, um, just to sort of see what would happen. So you'd... Uh, transfuse blood from a a small no you transfuse dog from a big dog into a little dog and you know the experimenters of a royal society no less uh, would imagine that this little dog had grown because it had blood from a big dog so you know it was all this they imagined things to be happening and one of the things they thought might happen is if you had a madman someone who was mildly insane, or as Samuel Pepys called this fella, tapped, a bit tapped, um, then maybe they could benefit from the blood of a calm creature like a lamb. They've obviously never been on a farm because lambs, they bugger off as soon as you approach them. They are not calm. But they have this reputation, don't we, of being calm and pure and godly. Um, and so they searched they wanted to get some mad fellow out of Bedlam. Um, but the enlightened uh, head of the, of, the, of the asylum there said, no, you're not doing that to my patients. <laughs> um, so they had a meeting and they came across this chap called Arthur Koga. And Arthur Koga, he just, he went to church with one of the people of the Royal Society and he was a bit weird. Um, and they said, well, you know, can we experiment on you, um, basically? And he said, I, I, you know, I'm sort of paraphrasing this. And he said, yeah, go on then. Um, but he would only speak to them in Latin, and he'd re but he'd report what he was feeling. So he reported things like a great heat going up my arm. Um, and he, he'd do things like taste for blood as it was sort of pouring from the sheep. Um, and they go, hmm, it's, it has good relish. Um, <laughs> and, and, this, and this was like paid theatre as well, right? So this was done the Royal Society. And yeah. you know, people would have paid to go in and watch all this stuff. And, and apparently, there was, a, I think you write in the book that there was a heckling from the crowds where they kind of didn't believe there was any sort of transfusion taken. Yes, on a, few, on, a few of the, on a few of the occasions. What I love about Arthur Koga, though, is that his last transfusion. Uh, they they want to do a third transfusion. So he has two. They want to do a third, and they can't find him. But then they get a letter from Agnes Koga, which means Koga the lamb in Latin, saying, "Well, I've partly transformed into a lamb now, and I'm only going to agree for you to do the third one if you can finish the transformation, please." Which I find hilarious. I love that. That's so British of a certain type, isn't it? Just hold this while I stand here. Yeah, yeah. But do you, but you know what? I, I saw I, this. I won't mention the name, but there's another historian I, I, who I read 
recounting this story, I think they must have been American because they call they thought that Agnes Koga was just his mother's name. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm I I went to a comprehensive school. I didn't know what the Latin was. Right. But at least I did mention it to someone. Yeah. And was able to <laughs> tell you before I made that mistake. Yeah. Well, it's it's there's really some great stories packed into here. One that jumped out for me is um, myself and Derek, obviously being, being a history nerd, a particularly uh, interesting part of history for me is the Battle of Waterloo, right? Mm. I, I have some sort of weird affinity with the place. But there's a story about Waterloo teeth, um, which you know fascinates me as well. And it recently came back into, into public consciousness because they found some new research about them. Basically what it was mm. was, the harvesting of dead soldiers' teeth uh, from the battlefield, not just in Waterloo, but across Europe. The peninsula, it started in the peninsula war, yeah. In, exactly, yeah. right? And, and like, this wasn't, you know, some weird back alley shady dealing stuff, you know. It, this that was, happened as well. <laughs> well that, I'm sure that happened as well. Like, you know, in, in, in society terms, it was presumably, you know, a good thing to do to show up at the ball with a new shiny row of gnashers that had just come from the mouth of some young, poor conscript who had fallen, you know, to a musket ball in the head and took out his lovely white teeth and put them into their own gnashers, which presumably were kind of similar to my own in terms of like <laughs> all yellowed and rotty. But I, I've got to say for, for people who are not <laughs> viewing this, your teeth look phenomenally good to me. <laughs> Thank you very I mean, much. look at these. These are bloody horrible. A oh, filling man. came out yesterday as well. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm, I, ignore me, carry on. <laughs> Presumably we're not all wearing Waterloo teeth here this evening that we've moved on. But like, you were like, <laughs> the 18th century dentists bought live teeth? Yeah, food. yeah. So, okay, so in, in my bit of storytelling there, we're talking about soldiers who, you know, they're dead. You know, there would be an argument that they're going into the ground anyway. Why let a good set of gnashers go to waste? But what are we talking about? What are, what are we talking about these these dentists? And tell us more about that. Okay, well, tooth transplantation. Dentistry, actually, the word dentistry was invented in, or coined, I should say, in 1728 in France. Dentiste. Uh, by Pierre Fauchard, so the first dentist effectively um and that's excuse me that's important because before that point the only tooth care only dental care you could realistically get was from a tooth drawer or an operator for the teeth basically you could have the tooth pulled out that was annoying you or giving you giving you jip causing you pain probably a better way to put it <laughs> sorry i'm from the north <laughs> We can relate. We can relate. <laughs> so you could have your teeth taken out. But that's it. But what Fauchard um, instituted with this new way of looking at the teeth. So from the last century, we had this sort of scientific revolution. Well, people call it a scientific revolution. It's, it's a slower moving thing than that term sort of um, suggests. But, you know, you started to get people who would engage with empiricism and start to develop a more or less 
modern scientific approach to you know looking at evidence weighing it and analyzing it and Fauchard applied that for teeth uh, so that's the first time and amongst his findings was that the tooth worm which is uh, which was supposedly a little tiny worm that caused toothache it buried into your teeth and caused toothache that didn't exist instead what was causing your toothache were you know cavities it's, it's down to sugar bad health um bad diet that kind of thing malnutrition as well which was rife sort of in in in, in that period um and to sort of fix that you could have a filling so he invented fillings he invented filing he invented um a, or he suggested you might wash your teeth out with urine which um the 18th nice. century Listerine. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for people who can't see this now, all three of us are kind of expressing. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. For all three of us, if you, you can't see us, all three of us are doing this. And then you show again. It remains visual. But you know what we're doing. <laughs> you definitely do, do a more visual version of this. <laughs> Just for the facial expressions. And these oh, green glasses as well. We love the green oh, yeah. glasses. <laughs> uh, basically, though, um, all of those 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 um, kinds of procedures sort of shifted dentists, shifted tooth care from being not just for relief of pain anymore, but it's, it's now part of a beauty industry. It's part of preserving uh, your youth, uh, making you, yourself look good, not smell quite as nasty um and it you know that taps into early capitalism uh and the widening class system as well opening up at, in that time so you get a supply of teeth basically from poor children who are you know, getting newly erupted adult teeth um and you're getting a demand from older richer people who have ruined their teeth and are having them removed and want to plug the gap because they want to get ahead. They want to preserve their beauty. And it's, I mean, you mentioned philosophy earlier. It's, it's, it's completely tied up with a different idea about identity as well. When we talked about blood transfusion earlier, it was sort of this idea that you had a soul or something about you was indivisible and it was inside of you. And what made blood transfusion so exciting and so terrifying to Catholic people was that it offered a way to move those souls from one body to another to sort of divide the indivisible and that's terrifying. By the 18th century that makes no sense anymore because you have new ideas about identity so you you don't just have an identity you create your identity you become an individual in the modern sense of a word word you you become yourself in relation to what you buy, what you own, the people you know, what's things that are done to you, the things that you do. So you identify with something. And part of that identifying with something gives you a sense that you can, you have this particular kind of concern over your appearance where if you, if you want to improve your appearance you can just claim 
another person's tooth and that becomes part of your identity in the same way as any other uh, purchased object does it's all these different things have this effect on who we are like they're mm. they're you know we just don't realize we don't think of it in that way because our thinking has been changed and shaped by all that has gone before us and that's huge this, this whole side you know i mean like i, I hadn't read anything medical i hadn't read any other medical history before uh, and i'm just going wow you know every, everything you're just saying is going it's just this is a huge part of who we are absolutely oh, huge you have part. a perfect readers for me then yeah yeah, yeah for sure I, I, it's just something we never, I never would have taught before. And I'm the same as Derek, not really that well read up on it, but it introduces so many d- different ideas. Mm. Like, I would have known about chloroform. <laughs> would have known about a bit about, you know, battlefields, uh, amputations. Yeah. Um, you know, I know the whole barber pole thing. You know, that was like, you know, barbers used to not just do air guts. You know, I had a bet with my wife guts. about that, that barber pole thing. Because yeah, okay. I... I thought that, well, I've known that for a while. It's sort of one of the you know, medical historian's favourite fact kind of thing, that the barber pole, you know, the red and the white stripes comes from the blood and the bandages. My wife said, no, everybody knows that. Don't put it in. Everybody knows that. I don't know. It's, at the moment, it's sort of half and half. Did you know? Did you you knew that, Derek? Uh, yeah, no, I, I knew that. But like I, I, you know, like that, I was saying it to my wife, and she's gone really. See, fifty-fifty again. Yeah. Glad I put it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to be remiss to leave it out. But I mean, I suppose it, like the breadth and scope of your book is vast. It goes from you know, it's the complete history, if if, if you like, where you get into modern. And mm. surgery. I mean, like the, the schools of physicians versus the schools of surgeries are, are about, they're, they're two different schools, really. Um, and they're two different personality types, I would venture. <laughs> Maybe that's a diplomatic way of putting it. But surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah. that. I've, ju- I've just had an interview for an American podcast. In fact, it went on for two hours because the first hour came to the end and then the recording bloody take <laughs> so that all again all again because uh, i was I, I wanted an hour break before seeing you but i didn't get any um but th- exactly the same thing talking about surgeons exactly the same sort of how should we put it yeah. <laughs> so uh, how should we put it <laughs> yeah well i usually say that a lot of my best friends are narcissists okay so, yeah. yeah okay fair enough that's true that's no, good. no. I, well, I don't, this this goes to the heart, really, of, of why I, I wanted, or why why I was delighted to be able to start way way back in history, because the stories about transplant surgery that everybody knows. I mean, where would you start if you? Where would you both start if you were going to write a history of transplant surgery? Well, it would have been a lot more recent than you did. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Probably would have been kind of. Waterloo, <laughs> battlefield <laughs> amputations, or something like that. Really? Know? Okay. Or, 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 even, or even as more most recently as you know, after the First World War, right when mm-hmm. when facial reconstruction yeah, that was big. All right, yeah, yeah. came into its own. Then, am I right? You see, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Great, Paul. You've kind of upturned all my understanding <laughs> of the world. Of the world, indeed, and who I am. We're going to be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who you are. <laughs> I told you who I was before this uh, episode, and now I'm, go- I'm having an existential crisis. If you could, um, if you could write a review to that effect, <laughs> <be> very <laughs> grateful. Well, 
You heard it here first, listeners. And <laughs> maybe you should come with a pre-warning, Derek, at the start of this episode. You may not know who you are. <laughs> yeah, well, well considering you only figured that out about a year ago. <laughs> now, oh, there's a story there. It's a life crisis, Derek. It's well, I would have started, actually, with kidney transplants in the 50s or something like that. Okay. Okay. But as soon as you start looking at, at um, so there are loads of books about organ transplants, and universally they're almost all written by retired surgeons, and they're almost all, almost all trying to place themselves in one way or another in in the, in the history. Um, but they don't tend to go back further than nineteen hundred. Okay. Because that's when we that's when we get well two things happen you get um immunology coming into some kind of maturity so you get an idea of blood types based on you know chemicals <laughs> chemical blood types your blood not being lamb cat sheep it, instead it would be a b or o it used to be c actually when he first invented the system but it became o for zero actually for, for no antigens um so that was some 1900 and also vascular anastomosis which basically just means sewing blood vessels together so that procedure was perfected then so that tends to be the start of transplant history for for people for me it comes very late very late on in the history and taken as a whole kind of era from 1900 to now the way that it's usually presented for me it tends to be a little bit one note. It tends to be a matter of this man did something remarkable. This man did something slightly better. This man won the race to transplant a human heart. Uh, this man discovered, a you know, it's sort of one-upmanship kind of thing. This sort of genius male surgeon narrative, which um, most, of, most of history seems to have caught on to being a really old fashioned and not very interesting way of writing history. But, you know, in the history of transplants, it, that seems to be the way you do it. Um, and I was reflecting on why that is. And I think it's, it's because in the, all of these narratives come up in the sixties. So they sort of start then, which is when the term spare parts starts to become, well, it, Actually, that's a little, that's quite a bit earlier, actually, but it starts to become really associated with transplants at the end of the 60s, early 70s, um, because of a book by Donald Longmore called Spare Part Surgery. Anyway, um, it's an era, it's post-war. People want these positive stories and they can find them in medicine in general. But definitely when you have something like transplant, which is, you know, same kind of cultural flavor as the moon landings isn't it really it's you can talk about it in the same breath it's only a year and a half apart actually the first heart transplant right. um but also in the 60s that's when that's when doctors and hospitals started to get wise to pr curating their own image creating stories about themselves that the world would want to hear um so you so when when i sort of quite flippantly say you know um that a sur surgeon's a narcissist and that kind of thing i'm sort of i'm i'm half being serious because it's part of the image 
that I feel that they curate for themselves to, to have this sort of image of, of a, you know, this hero who can sort it all out generated in a society or evolved in a society that really needed those heroes. When uh, two things, I suppose I've got to say here. One, when I've met surgeons from this era, they have not at all been narcissists. They've been almost universally lovely, almost. Uh, there are stories I'm not going to tell you on air, <laughs> but almost universally lovely. And I, I really do think it's part of the image that they are encouraged to present of themselves. I was asked by a BBC producer to if I knew any funny surgeons, yeah. and I had to say I knew I know one funny surgeon. <laughs> but we tend not to be quite as funny as they think they are, uh, but they are generally really, really nice. So, you know, these stories emerged in a world that needed them, post-war sort of recovery mode, if you will. I came to, to maturity, to adulthood, really. I'm 38. I came to maturity. I got my first sort of proper jobs and things just before the financial crash of 2008. And I've never, I've never known that positive world every every message that has been given to me has been one of doom and gloom my, my first emails <laughs> you know when i when i went freelance as a filmmaker for instance my first emails were all about in this it all started in this financial climate you know all started with everything from then onwards in fact probably from um uh, 9 11 onwards everything's had that kind of bleakness to it sort of culturally so those stories didn't really have anything to sort of excite me and i think that's why i think that's another reason i, I sort of i got excited about what happened before what's the deeper story here what's what is the human uh, angle yeah and you know i love the title as well spare parts it makes us just sound like pieces of machinery right i didn't like yeah. it did you know oh, it's it was it was forced upon me oh right. well not forced i had to agree to it obviously i didn't i didn't what, say what were your, no, we're what doing was it anyway well it was initially called dragon in a suitcase oh okay and the reason for that is there's an eight a beautiful 18th century story um about about transplant surgery where a dragon is cut up in libya posted to london and reassembled and the, uh, the life force is concentrated in its head and then the life force is then uh, released so if you've read if you've read the bit of the book about vitalism about um the tooth transplant and john hunter and and that sort of that life force the life force being inside of the blood life itself being a particle mm. and then you can make that particle go from a living body into a dead part and then the body will claim that dead part it's that same mechanism used to to animate the dragon and it's it's also a, an allegory for early capitalism it's meant to be a newcomen um, steam engine that drew water from the thames as drinking water the reason i am actually glad they made me change it is because every time i told some of the title i'd have to explain that yes <laughs> no that's it we, we, we may never have found you put it like that you know yeah but i, I tell you what yeah paul you could keep it for the netflix series then which you know should be based on this absolutely enthralling well, book you know it's it's such a great read and uh, oh you're very kind but i haven't actually used i've used the, the title in a musical piece that i'm working on 
with um, a group called Riot Ensemble, who are um, an award-winning, you know, proper yeah. contemporary music group. Um, and I, I, when I when I was starting to pull the book together, I went to observe a kidney transplant. So I, I went to the operating theatre. And uh, so that's the bit that I opened the book with. But I didn't understand what the hell was going on in there because I don't have any surgical training. And it's sort of towards the end when I saw that kidney turn pink from grey to pink in a second or so. I thought, hang on. This has got a musical structure. It's got rhythms. It's got timbres. It's got tempos. It was kind of an opening sonata. You know, you're opening the body literally opening the body, cutting your way into the meat of the subject. You've got an adagio section where you're sort of fiddling around, looking, getting, you know, familiarizing yourself with the inside of a body. And you're clamping, very slowly clamping this organ in, releasing the clamp. Suddenly it's, it speeds up a minuet, your the organ's dancing, and then you've got a closing sonata. So I thought, well, okay, I'll see if I can get somebody to do a musical response to transplant surgery. And so I called it, actually, it's, it's called Surgical Soundscapes, but I used the story of Dragon in a Suitcase as a, as a audio thing. Well, there That's you go. That's so cool. There, really, <laughs> there you go, folks. Coming up soon, live on stage, we'll have Paul Craddock and his musical soundscapes, did you say? Soundscapes. Surgical yeah. soundscapes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, live. And we'll be... <laughs> Myself or Derek will offer ourselves up as a sacrificial vi victim for the first one to... Yeah, oh, no, the first one, right. first one was two weeks ago. Oh, right, okay. Actually, <laughs> not me first. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and it needs an Irish premiere, though. Right, okay. Well, Derek, step up to the mark there, my good friend. Take one for That's the historians. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll do that, we'll do that. It's definitely more than just a uh, historian in your ball. And you can get that from the writing. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got that, you know, oh. you've got the, the, the movement. So you're, you're definitely uh, for, maybe for, a literary novel in it yet for you. you for know? people who can't see, I'm fanning myself like a oh, Victorian please. lady. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? And um, yeah. oh, we could we could talk all even you know yeah, honestly, right. um, but like I, I, yeah we we could we'll have to do this again for sure. Thank you so much. It's been so nice this. talking and, to you. And I, I can relate to you too. Oh, well, that's, that's what we love to hear on the hip stories. You know, we're not all dusty. You know, history has such a dusty name to it that we're trying to change and help change all that. So thank you for that. You know, hopefully it's thank been you. Yeah. As it was for us. And uh, it, was, well, it was wonderful. I enjoyed it very much. Did you enjoy yourself, Derek? It looked like you oh, were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, What's that painting behind you, Derek? Oh, that is actually, it's an Irish artist. My wife would tell you more about uh, that. Um, ah. But yeah, we're in the middle of moving house at the moment while it's trying to renovate and then move into an Airbnb while we're waiting for it to finish. So we've got it all going on. And yet he still manages to come on and... Oh, still do that. I know, that's no, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. A man of many talents. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll let the listeners go, folks. Um, thank you so much for joining us again on another episode of The Historians. Hope you enjoyed it with Paul Cry I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode 
where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here